Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. Very glad to be here with Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen as we are recording this on Monday, September 21st. You'll probably hear this uh, a couple of days after, but good to be with you again and happy to also mention our sponsor, Crossway. And in particular, the ESV Everyday Bible, 365 readings through the whole Bible. This Bible is designed from the ground up to be an inviting daily reading Bible. Help readers achieve their goal of reading through the Bible in a year. Each daily reading presents a passage from the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs in a a helpful, accessible, attractive way. That's aimed to get people to read through their Bible, the whole Bible, in a year. And I know, uh, Justin, you you must hear from time to time people sort of grimace or groan about, oh, we have so many study Bibles or so many specialty Bibles, and there are there are you know extremes, the the horse lovers Bible or or whatnot. But <laughs> you know uh, these sort of Bibles, they're helpful. I mean, if if there's a Bible that can get people and make it more uh, e- easier for people to read through the whole Bible in a year. And that's a Bible we ought to be grateful for. So I'm, I'm thankful for all the ways that Crossway tries to bring the Bible to us to help us learn good theology, get good commentary, apply the gospel to our lives, get us through the Bible in a year. And I say, if those little tweaks get more people reading and understanding the Bible, I'm, I'm grateful for it. So thank you to Crossway. Well, the big news in the uh, not just the political world, but cultural world, especially here in the United States, is the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Friday night. The, the news broke, and now there's been lots of conversation about what to do next. We did not start this podcast to be political pundits, so you can look elsewhere for the commentary on what you think will happen or what you think should happen. And what is fair or right or wise or good or strategic, and lots of people have an opinion on that. But I thought it would be worth the three of us perhaps just using the occasion to think about what this says, and especially the immediate foment, not surprisingly, what this says about our religious culture, our political culture, how the two have become almost one, uh, what what does this reveal about where we are in this cultural moment, which at least the people I'm talking to find to be very, uh, I don't think frightening is too strong a word, as we thought two, uh, 2020 couldn't get any more cantankerous. It's like your apocalyptic bingo card just punched out <laughs> another number. And, uh, you know, we're just waiting for worst case scenarios to unfold where this the uh the election is thrown to the supreme court which is considered illegitimate and devolves into even worse violence we we genuinely pray that does not happen so uh colin how are you seeing the situation and how do you think we ought to respond as christians seems that the response is out of proportion to perhaps what the Supreme Court ought to be. I think we all know that 
at this point with the, the presidency being so incredibly powerful, but then also Congress seeming to devolve a lot of its authority because it really can't reach any conclusions that between the executive branch and its nominations and then the Senate with their confirmations, uh, the Supreme Court has a really remarkable measure of power. And we've talked about this before of how even as the founders had intended the government to be balanced, it's become unbalanced in a number of different ways. And so I guess what concerns me is what you said, Kevin, the religious significance and the merging of the cultural and the political and the religious in the Supreme Court, where I don't know if you guys saw the images of outside a Supreme Court building over the weekend, a group gathering and singing John Lennon's Imagine, which apparently is is become the kind of secularist anthem. And so it shows that there is this incredible religious impulse to turn toward the collective and the transcendent and toward the ritual. And I don't know that it would be too much of a stretch to think of the Supreme Court as almost a almost like a high priesthood. And so the death of a high priest, somebody who intercedes between the people and their transcendent ideals in this case, is a moment of tremendous import and visceral pain. Now, I think it would be, it'd be remiss to imagine, or it'd be incorrect to imagine that this suddenly emerged with Democrats or liberals with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think many conservatives were very worried, and I would put myself in that category when Antonin Scalia had died, um, precisely because we know the significance of the court in being able to dictate the terms of everyday life, including and especially perhaps our religious practice and the interpretation thereof from the Bill of Rights. So, Justin, I don't, I don't know what, how you interpreted that or what you res- responded with. I mean, the initial response, even between us, is just speculating about the politics behind it. But would you, I mean, help me with the history here, Justin. Was it first in the 1980s with Robert Bork, which ironically was a major effort from Senator Joe Biden at the time to be able to spike that nomination from President Reagan? Is that the beginning of the sort of... Uh, just weightiness of the Supreme Court, where now nominations, instead of being a kind of formality and a deference to the executive, now become almost what Kevin's alluding to, the potential for civil war. Yeah, I'm certainly not an expert on the history of the Supreme Court, and I think it'd be fascinating to read a relatively objective retelling of all of it, but it does seem like prior to Bork, you had uh, even the opposition party was voting unanimously for um, the other justice uh, that the president uh, nominated. And so, yeah, when uh, President Reagan nominated Judge Bork and Ted Kennedy learns of it and goes to the to the floor and essentially says that uh, we're going to have an apocalypse if this man uh, is confirmed and he will do everything in his power and uh, women are going to be having back alley abortions and uh, all every civil rights accomplishment would be derailed and turned back. I mean, that introduced a new level of partisanship and ugliness into the the battles, and we've never really turned back from that. So, um, yeah, add to that, then we just continued to get increasingly partisan and rancorous. 
you know that whoever's nominated, no matter how much integrity they have, no matter how good of a judge they were, they will be painted as uh, the embodiment of Satan himself <laughs> sitting on the Supreme Court. And th- I think this almost goes without saying, but it's the only position that has a lifetime appointment. So uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who is one of the, the leading candidates, supposedly, what is she, 47 years old? Yeah. I mean, Oliver Wendell Holmes served until he was 90 and he retired. So, I mean, you're looking at uh, you know, four decades, potentially, if she were to become uh, the next associate justice. We don't have anything like that. You might hate Trump, and yet you can uh, think, well, in four years, we're going to have a new president, or we can elect a new president, or you might hate your senator or your representative. We don't have anything else that's an appointment. So you add the combination of the longevity and then how much power the Supreme Court has to determine you know, basic things as an unelected official. That's it's really significant. And three appointments in four years, I don't think there are three openings in four years with three appointments. That's quite a few. Um, I'd have to go back to see exactly how many George W. Bush had in eight years and Obama had in eight years. You guys could probably remember off the top of your head, but Three and I four did, years. Two and two. two and two. That's what I thought. I just wasn't yeah. sure. Kagan okay. and Sotomayor and Alito and Roberts. Right. So, I Googled it because I was curious, uh, like, who, which president has appointed the most? And uh, it was George Washington. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very helpful. Very helpful. Brilliant, brilliant there. I mean, do you guys do you guys think, Kevin, if, if you play out the history, it wouldn't be a surprise if we connected the decline of the Supreme Court or the increasing rancor around the Supreme Court to Roe v. Wade, because you had Roe v. Wade, but then the aftermath, people are still kind of confused in 73. Yeah, the Democrats take over in 76. Both parties are still a little bit divided or quite a bit divided on abortion. Then Reagan comes in 1980, but he starts with Sandra Day O'Connor, if I remember correctly. Right. Um, so first woman to the Supreme Court. And so that doesn't, that, that, going to transcend boundaries. So unless I'm wrong in my history, which I definitely could be, could you draw then a direct line between what happened in 1973 to what happened with Bork and then what we've been dealing with ever since and why the Supreme Court has taken on this deeply religious significance? Do you think I'm, think I'm right there or am I off? Well, you could make the case, again, we don't know the mind of God, but you could, you could almost make the case that Almost all of the political turmoil. Now, you're going to have political turmoil no matter what. That's always been the case. But so much of the intensity, the rancor, you, you can almost say it's the Lord's judgment upon us for Roe v. Wade. I mean, think yeah. Roe v. Wade has made racial relations more difficult because it's made political polarization more intense. It's made the Supreme Court fights. It has uh, made everything in the political sphere because of the immorality of Roe v. Wade and also the the illegitimacy of it. And even many people on the left recognize that as a piece of jurisprudence, it it was built upon feathers upon feathers. Um, so, you know, it's not our place on this podcast to say what should or shouldn't happen. But I think the one of the things that's so fearful is any of our institutions are only palatable or only serve their purpose in so long as the people do grant them legitimacy. And certainly the Constitution is meant to do that and the rule of law 
But whether people are right to do so or not, when they begin to doubt that there is legitimacy in the institutions and people feel like it is something is profoundly unfair, whether it may be legal or not. So that may be conservatives feeling like, you know, look, this is what this is what the Democrats do. It's not what we do. You did it to Bork. You did it to Clarence Thomas. You did it to Brett Kavanaugh. So that's why we're going to go ahead and get this while we can, because we know what you do to justices. Or the Democrats feeling like, wait a minute, you said with Merrick Garland, you don't do this in an election year, and now you're going to do this? And people go back, well, but Joe Biden said that you do do it, or we meant you don't do it when you hold the opposite seat of power. Okay, all of those points can be made politically and not arguing which one is the best strategy to take or that there's necessarily a Christian position on that. But it is the case that you see the whole legitimacy and the Supreme Court, even though its numbers have gone down, still ranks higher than the presidency and the Congress and many of our other institutions and basic trust that people have for it. And because they have become, to use Ben Sass's phrase, super legislators so often. And really, you, 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 I mean, go back and find that 10-minute civics lesson that Ben Sass did during the Kavanaugh hearings, which, you know, why they wear black robes, because they're, they're supposed to be not super legislators. They're supposed to be deciding the law. And the fact that the Supreme Court nominations tear apart the fabric of friendships and relationships and the whole country and, and heaven forbid, descend into violence tells us this is not the way, not only that the founders envisioned the Supreme Court to function, it was not supposed to have this much power or have this much uh, import infused into it. But it also says something to your point, Colin, about the, the way in which we are incurably religious and we will find religious transcendence somewhere or anywhere. And it's like, you know, Tim Keller's line about idols. Her idols always let us down. And we can tell that when they're idols, because when they let us down or when somebody is, is poking them, um, we'll go to any lengths to defend them. One of the things I seem to pick up on both sides is that the left fears that the Supreme Court can roll back their founding mythology. I'm using that in that idolatry terminology there, which is the sexual revolution, the liberation of women in particular from the shackles of tradition. And I think traditionalists and Christians included believe that the Supreme Court can roll back their founding myth in America, the basic freedoms of religion that are afforded by and even uh, required and, and afforded by the by the Bill of Rights, the Constitution. And if that's how both sides see it, then no wonder they're so scared. No wonder they're so motivated. And I just think it would be a mistake to see it as only one side or the other sees it in those kinds of apocalyptic terms, because you can, and I'm more sympathetic to the right-wing view, of course, but when you look at the left-wing, it just what I mean, again, we see it with the John Le Lennon thing and just really believe that they're going to lose everything that matters to them. And I think that's 
crazy and I disagree with that, but that's how Ruth Bader Ginsburg went from being a black robe to being the notorious RBG. Well, and and that's a big part of it too, is the pop cultural icon that she was, whether many people on our Facebook feeds, you know, could really say more than one sentence about her, yet people are posting, you know, you've been everything to me and one popular Christian personality was saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You've entered, entered into your rest. Even she's a non-observed, she was a non-observant Jew out. You know, it seems she was hardworking. She was uh, decent. Uh, So yes, all sympathy and condolences to friends and family. And many of us have heard about her unique and very real friendship with Scalia across political and jurisprudence divides, and we take some comfort in that. So I'm all for honor to whom honor is due and respecting people, even uh, when I may disagree with some of their views. But certainly that plays a big part. If you see that this is your dashboard saint, and now the evil one is going to replace your saint with a devil, well, yeah, then, as people are already saying, all bets are off. Yeah. All bets are off. And it's one thing to say all bets are off politically, because that's how politics work. You know, one side does one thing, another side does another. You overreach, or people, the voters think it's overreach, and you push back in the other direction. Within the rule of law, that's how politics work. It's another if all bets are off means, um, you know. Burn it all down. Burn it all down. Yeah. Yep, because that's how that's how you play the game, and you don't play. And you hear this on both sides. Look, they don't play the game by the rules, and it's about time we keep getting steamrolled. And so we have to play the game not according to the rules, or we're we're not going to get anything that we want. Justin, any thoughts before we move on? Do you guys think if you were left wing progressives, you would still hate the song Imagine? I sure hope so. I hope if I had some intellectual coherence to my basic (laughs) worldview. Uh, It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to know. I mean, I don't think I, I don't think I picked up on it on it as being particularly offensive or problematic until I began to see so much of its religious iconographical usage. And then I just began to say, what, what exactly is this? And then you give more scrutiny to it and realize why it's I've always ridiculous. hated that song. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin gets the award. I'm thinking like elementary school, Kevin. Shut up. His song is terrible. Well, that's quite possible. <laughs> quite possible. Not, not, not perhaps what Greg Gilbert might have done, but. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Well, I mean, there's also a. I mean, there's a martyrdom aspect to Lenin as well, which, of course, ratchets up that that um, religious significance as well. And even a pilgrimage aspect of it within Central Park with the Imagine location as well. So right. all those all those trappings, you don't have to and be that, a Jamie Smith or Tim Keller or whatever to be able to pick up on that. It's a drug component, too. Well, yeah, it's also true. <laughs> a uh, yeah, ritual partaking, I suppose. Perhaps, perhaps. Okay, so somewhat related to uh, talking about politics, uh, I've wanted to talk about this for 
several months on the podcast, and I think the two of you have are, are willing to politely let me talk about it and bring Indulge. you into the conversation. Indulge. Um, I mean, it gets into things that I'm interested in, things that I've studied, but you do see this. This is a conversation that's been going on for well over a year. Uh, what is the 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 Christian way to evaluate classical liberalism? Not we, we use liberalism as left wing, left wing theologically, left wing politically, but I, I'm putting classical liberalism to mean enlightenment philosophy in one sense, but even more of that, you might say the the fusion of enlightenment principles with classic republicanism and at the founding basic Protestant virtue and worldview. So those three streams come together at the founding. Uh, you know, the perennial question, is America a Christian country or was the founding Christian? Well, it all depends on what you mean by Christian, what you mean by the founders. But it, I think it's undeniable that there were certainly Enlightenment themes, and many of those came from people who are not Christians or certainly not evangelical Christians. And at the same time, they were tied together, for good or bad, we'll talk about that, with a number of Christian and even sometimes Reformed ideas about the depravity of man and why we need checks and balances. So how are we to understand the role of liberalism, classic liberalism, and a Christian response to it. And just to flesh out a definition, then I'll ask you guys a question. I was listening, uh, I listened to these great courses. I've listened to probably a dozen of them over the years on my commute and listened to one. I think this was on modern political tradition or political philosophy or something. And at the very end, the professor asked the question of his class, why is it that even with all of our differences, you still uh, inhabit many of the same assumptions, whether you realize it or not? Now, I don't know how many years ago this was. I think this actually is getting less and less true. But he said, I'm quoting here, do you believe in fascism, communism, aristocracy, royalism, or theocracy? That is, do you think we should have a one-party state with no free elections? or rule by those who inherit wealth, or rule by the family of whoever ruled last, or rule by the unelected clerics of somebody's church? Do you believe that the power of government and the majority should not be limited? Should there be no individual rights, as in the Bill of Rights? He goes on and asks these questions, and he's asking them, thinking, well, yeah, you you don't want one-party state with no free elections. You don't believe that whoever has wealth should be the next rulers. You're not into aristocracy. You don't believe that the ruler should just come like royalism from whoever the last family. You don't believe in unelected clerics. So all of those things, and you could add communism in the mix. Uh, I mean, these have been ways that societies have organized and governed themselves. And most everyone, though maybe it's changing, would say, no, that's not. So there, there has typically been a broad sort of classic liberalism free elections, rule of law, justice is blind, democratic norms, checks and balances, uh, protection of liberty, government is there to make sure that uh, people don't intrude upon the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And in recent years, this has been 
under attack from both the left and the right, uh, religious and irreligious. So, Colin, before asking you what you think and asking Justin what he thinks, Colin, where have you seen this sort of classic liberal American republicanism, not the party, but the ideology, where have you seen this devalued on both the left and the right? Good question, Kevin. I think we see on the left, especially the push toward communism, or the push toward socialism, or the push toward uh, we don't want to work through politics as we know it in the West of checks and balances and things like that if it doesn't produce the desired end. So the end ultimately justifies the means. If the end is a vision for equality, uh, whether that be in terms of race or class or gender or ethnicity or whatever you want to say there, or historic, well, I guess class in their money, um, that then we just, we have to do what we have to do to be able to get there. So that's the basic push on the left. The push from the right might be a little bit more surprising and it's also a push toward the ends saying what is the point of liberty if it doesn't produce virtue if it doesn't produce something worth valuing so the belief is look at liberty gone to seed in this country it's lost its telos it's lost its purpose um it, there's no vision no no collective vision for the good life so what we need to do is to reinstitute a commonly shared goal of what we're trying to accomplish, what we're trying to inculcate here. And there's a belief that liberty has become, or liberalism, classic liberalism, has become itself an end that is destructive mm. toward tradition. So a good example of this would be often conversations about public school education versus especially classical Christian education and the differences. Well, if public school education is a kind of marketplace of ideas where our culture can come together, uh, moving towards certain certain common norms, then Protestantism or Christianity or traditional Christianity can be a part of that. But a lot of people don't believe that's what's happening anymore with public education. They believe that it is actually trying to push an alternate vision of the good life that is threatening to traditional Christianity. Therefore, we need to produce other institutions that will push people toward a, a better, you know, more God-honoring goal. So I think what you're seeing from the right is simply a basic breakdown of trust that as Christianity recedes in this culture, liberty becomes an end to itself and therefore becomes deeply damaging uh, to people, including Christians. And I, I can definitely say when, when I can read some of the, the people on this um, on this side of things, especially Patrick Deneen, I have a lot of sympathy with what they're saying. I don't, I don't in the end typically agree with them. But, and certainly there are much more extreme versions of this. We've talked about this going full blown into ordaining God's law, um, which you could talk about, I guess, if we want to. But that's, um, but the, the versions that Deneen and others will push, I mean, I have a lot of just natural sympathy toward, even if in the end, I don't agree with all their conclusions. Justin, are you for or against David Frenchism? <laughs> I'm sure you I followed like that. Person. Yeah, you followed that debate from a year or so ago. Yeah, uh, I didn't follow all of the ins and outs, but I think I'm more inclined towards David French than his opponent there. And yet, you know, wouldn't say everything the way that David would or would have, you know, some fears that David wouldn't. Um, I think Patrick Deneen's 
book, uh, what is it? Why Liberals Have Failed. Yeah. Uh, is really worth reading and really worth thinking through. Uh, as I read it, I thought, I think these are plausible arguments and classical liberalism is open to these critiques uh, or vulnerable to these critiques. And yet, I don't think it's ever sufficient for us to be able to poke holes in all of the things potentially wrong with a side without thinking of what is the alternative, because there may not be a better alternative. Uh, we don't have utopianism. This is not heaven on earth. So um, I do think classical liberalism has its faults and its foibles, and perhaps there are inherent um, and irredeemable, but I have not yet seen something that seems more compelling or has less problems than it. Um, you know, one, one thing that I think would be great is if we had a rediscovery of the Socratic dialogues. Perhaps that's not what you were anticipating that I would say, but <laughs> reading Plato, I mean, Plato was wrong on so many things, especially politically, but he gets you thinking in a creative way about why you think that he's wrong and can you show that he's wrong? Uh, I think that's a, it's, it's a pride and true way of exercising our mind and trying to come to grips with what we believe and why we believe and, and how to argue and how to think through various things. So that would be my recommendation. I think Justin, a lot of that is a function of internet culture because it, it's very easy to be able to criticize and to poke holes, but rather let's not be constructive on that. So I'm, I'm open to all kinds of different alternatives to what that would look like. Kevin, do you think there's some overlap here into how we approach capitalism, almost as if it's been so normative for so long that we really can't even understand the world without it? And so we take advantage of classic liberalism to talk about how terrible it is. But like Justin's point, we don't know what the alternative, or we don't even remember, we don't have living memory of what the right. alternative is, even though plenty of people fought in World War II on behalf of classic liberalism, essentially against, uh, well, thankfully we didn't fight against communism in that case, but certainly against fascism and against um, sort of, well, obviously the, the Japanese emperor and that totalitarian government as well. So it's not like you could even assume in our lifetime, I mean, our lifetime, yes, but in everybody's lifetime today that classic liberalism was a given, but I just, I see something similar with, with capitalism where you don't remember what it's really like without capitalism well people don't understand yeah what the alternatives are and that the things that we enjoy are are precarious civilization is precarious i think we're, we're seeing that more and more each day and the things that we enjoy and the freedoms that we enjoy uh are, are were not the case for most of human history so when we talk about classic liberalism and this fusion of at, at the founding of Protestant principles and classic republicanism and Lockean liberalism. Um, yes, I think there's always open for critique and, and liberalism at its best welcomes that critique. But as you guys have been saying, you have it both from the left. Now, quite explicitly, um, this is from Richard Delgado, Gene Stefanczyk and critical race theory and introduction they say, unlike traditional civil rights discourse, which stresses incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. So they're very upfront saying 
no, we're, we're, we're not a part of this program. And then you have from the right. So, uh, uh, Amari, uh, Soreb Amari, I think that's how you say his name. Uh, hear it all the time. He was the one who wrote the piece a year ago against David Frenchism. And for those of you who don't know, which is probably most normal people, most. um, David French is a conservative reform evangelical writer. And, uh, they were arguing about, what was it? Drag queen story hour at a library out in California. And David French was basically saying, yeah, I think that's horrible. And I think in our liberal order and society, you know, people are going to have freedom to choose that. And we need to persuade people to do otherwise and show why it's not the good and the true and the beautiful. And Amari, who is um, part of those who are sometimes called Catholic integralists, wanting to see a stronger fusion between Catholicism and the state, said, well, no, we need we need to impose the highest good and virtue upon this. And then from the Reformed right, I read a piece not too long ago called The Heresy of Liberal Democracy. And I don't know if the author was theonomous, but certainly kind of leaning in that direction, that he said liberalism was not neutral and it was a different kind of religion and true Christianity and biblical Christianity would not just simply be uh, respected, but in some ways would be privileged. Now, it was privileged for most of our country's history, but that many of the beliefs that are inherent in classic liberalism are not supported by biblical Christianity. So we don't need to adjudicate all of that, but I do think it's instructive because underneath a, a number of the debates, and, and now particularly thinking of those on the right who are kind of on the same team in a lot of other areas, are arguing about whether or not it still can be salvaged or without the same virtue that the country used to have, that the system doesn't work. And at some point, we'll have our good friend Jonathan Lehman on here because Jonathan <laughs> and I have a, a longstanding He's much more negative about John Locke than I am. The beef. It's like yes. a legitimate beef. It's like a legitimate John Locke beef. I'll bring in Greg Forster and he'll really come on my side. He'll on help the, you out there. On the John Locke thing. <laughs> what What do you guys think about this? I'll throw it back to you guys. And it has to do with this same subject. One of the, the reasons why I think history and the founding is so uniquely important in America Okay, every country cares about their history and they have uh, pride in certain people and events and patriotism. But it really is the case that America uniquely was founded on an I idea and on an ideal. And uh, Alan Gelzo makes this case too. Part of what, I mean, a huge part of what makes us Americans is not, at least in our ideals, it's not what you look like. It, America hasn't been blood and soil. That's not what makes an American. Of course, you have patriotism to your land and all, but that it's not been blood or soil. It's been, you can come from anywhere, legal channels, do it properly, but you can come and you can be an American. But there is something to being an American. And, and in large part, it's agreeing to celebrating, loving, and lauding these ideals. And so 
yes, we're always going to argue about history and what to emphasize and what not. And historians will get into the minutia of what happened. All of that's proper and legitimate. But I do think as Americans, we face a unique threat when we have lose any sort of agreed upon history. We don't even know when our founding was. We don't know the nature of our founding because that is what makes Americans Americans. Now this is we're we're Christians and that's far more important than our nationality and being Americans. But for a nation state to hold together that's not bound by ethnicity, it's not bound by religion, it's not bound by all having the same blood and soil. You're left with being bound by a shared ideal and history. And when you lose that, you lose any sense that you're anything like a cohesive nation. What Am I overstating the dangers here, Justin? No, I think you're exactly right. And uh, ben Sass, whom the three of us admire, whatever you think of him, I think he's exactly right that uh, America, at least in the last 50 years, has undergone a, a civics 101 crisis, that we don't uh, catechize, in a sense, our uh, students, our children into the basics of, of civics. I heard him say recently that uh, a significant portion, I can't remember the number of young people don't even believe in the First Amendment right now because to to have unfettered liberty of speech, uh, not only not threatening violence against somebody's physical person, but threatening violence against their expressive individualism uh, is something that sh should be prohibited. So when the next generation, to overuse a cliche, doesn't even believe in the First Amendment, then I think we're we're really entering into a cultural crisis. And I think you're right, Kevin. We, America is founded on an ideal and an idea. And once you lose that, even at the most basic level, it's not just theonomists and Catholic integralists who are arguing at an intellectual level about this. But it's the rank and file high school student who thinks uh, expressive individualism is a non-negotiable and anything that runs counter to that should be prohibited. That's a dangerous spot for us to be. <laughs> the other. Did you hear yeah. my phone ring? <laughs> yeah, yes. Did you, I'm uh, hoping so that was live. Trisha. So <laughs> I have just a few people are queued up with a with their, their own ringtone. So that was my wife. Okay, when it good. rings, it says "Pretty Woman." Um, I could show you. I could show you that. I just don't. I don't want you to think that uh, someone else gets that ringtone. I'll just keep that in a little real color. I won't say which one of you gets the Darth Vader ringtone. <laughs> The heavy breathing. I actually, um, I don't know if you ever listened to that. I, I actually had that as my ringtone for Jason Halopoulos for a time. The <laughs> because when he was my associate pastor, I felt like when he was calling, he, he, always, he would have something bad to tell me. Well, there was some that, crisis. That, that's got to be me then. Because when Justin calls you, it's probably to tell you you've sold a bunch more books. When I call you, it's because there's something wrong at TGC and you're well, the board chairman. That's true. So that's the problem. That's I want to be the Husker fight talk. Do I get that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> anything anything left on uh, wither liberalism? We didn't really get into theonomy. Maybe another time we'll do a proper deep dive on that and why uh, all three of us would not 
call ourselves the Onimists. Correct. Correct. Anything, Justin, you want to say about um, what? What do you predict the Huskers' record is going to be? <laughs> How much will they lose by to Ohio State? How much does Kevin Warren want them to lose by? <laughs> you, you, I hope you did see Pat Forty's response to say Nebraska's whining is just proof that Nebraska is not back. Sorry, Justin. He, yeah. What a terrible journalist. Can I say <laughs> that? On podcast or I edit he out? went to Mizzou, so I'm not offended. Uh, yeah, I don't know if we'll be playing Clemson for the national championship, but uh, hopefully we'll at least get to the playoffs. That's my <laughs> yeah. I'm, perpetually optimistic Husker fan. That's good. Uh, way to be. It seems like everybody on Twitter, by the way, is in the beginning of a season, whether it's NBA season, NFL season, just rah, rah, my team is incredible. This is going to be the year. And by the end of the year, they're just, we are, we are terrible. This is not worth it. I, I hate watching sports. For like, Chiefs, everybody does that except if you one team. Yeah, well, for Chiefs fans, it lasted all the way through the Super Bowl and the first game into the first half of this last week. And then it was, was, we're so terrible. What's anybody doing around here? I hate this. And then of course it's a miraculous. And now it's again, Harrison Butker pride day. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Oh my goodness. He carried my fantasy team last year. I wish (laughs) I had him him this year. Didn't get him this year. No, but the bears won. They're two and (laughs) oh, surprisingly. Okay. Uh, We'll talk about books here. We got 20 minutes left. All right, in our last minutes here, we want to talk about some books. And I thought it would be fun to explore with you, men. What are some of the books that were really formative for you when you were a young Christian? We, it, it's, isn't it the case that books that we love, they have not only to do with what we read, but when we read them? And sometimes, you know, they, they may be the best books, or maybe they were just the right books for us at the right time. So what were some of those, probably not when you were a kid, though maybe you read some great books. Certainly the Heidelberg Catechism was influential for me when I was growing up. But whenever you started getting really serious about your faith, maybe that's end of high school, maybe that's college, maybe that's early 20s, what were some of the, the formative Christian books for you? Colin? What do you have on your list? Oddly enough, Kevin, I actually do have a Heidelberg Catechism question for you. We can come back to that in the end. I want to ask you, our our church did three, uh, I think it was 27, 28, 29, something like that from the Heidelberg Catechism this last week. We recited them, Mm -hmm. which included the line about all of the evils God sends us. I'd love to have your response on that line from the Heidelberg Catechism, because we're going to discuss it in our home group. Okay, so while you're thinking about that, Mm -hmm. I know you've already written about this and teach on it, so um, you can always just give me chapter and verse. Lord's Day uh, 10. Say what? Lord's Day 10. Okay. Question and answer 27 and 28. What do we understand by the providence of God? That one? Is that what you did? Yep, that's the one. The almighty and ever-present power of God by which he beholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules over them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, prosperity and poverty— Health and sickness, all things, in fact, come to us not by his, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Yes, that's it. <laughs> and then, and then, yeah, the, the specific, in, but specifically the sending of the evils. That's what I want to hear from you about later. Okay, so on I books, believe it. I believe. Well, no, I know. I, I want to know how to just talk about it with our group. Um, so biblically, 
So, okay, fine. We're just going to do it now. Give me the explanation now. How do we talk about it biblically? I was going to, I was going to have people open up their Bibles and just do like a workshop where they talk through how would you build a consensus around this? So how would you guide us in that? Yeah. Well, Piper's got his 700 page book on Providence coming out. <laughs> um, you can read the good news we almost forgot, or I, I basically posted that chapter on Providence. If you Google me in Providence, you'll you'll okay. find it somewhere on my blog. But I mean, there's lots of, if, if disaster, uh, what is it from Amos? Is it that disaster comes to a city, has the Lord not caused it? And Isaiah, that he sends good and evil, have they not come from the Lord's hand? I think the evil there is, is raw. Now it's, you need to understand it. it's not, the Lord is enacting moral evil. I think it's a figure of speech, meaning all things come from his hand. But we certainly see examples, even evil spirits do his bidding. Yeah, I was thinking about Saul. Yeah, specifically. Thinking, thinking about Saul. Go back um, to Pharaoh. About the Pharaoh. Pharaoh and hardening his heart. And the, the devil needs to get permission before he can act in Job. So... Every so I, I would you could do a word not a word so you do a verse study and look up lots of verses there are dozens of them that show okay wow the Lord really does have sovereign control over all of this and then at a theological philosophical level I often try to go help people see uh, however you look at you're really dealing with some greater good argument some greater good theodicy people shy away from that. Um, that strong language of God's sovereignty, sending evil, because they they want to fall back on the theodicy, some kind of libertarian free will, or somehow God was not the origination in his decree of these things. I want to help people see, no, a, a better theodicy, a better greater good is not our free will, but God's glory. Now, both have their existential issues and problems. But I'd rather have the existential problem be, okay, I, I I need help getting used to a God that's like this, for his, who works so for his glory, than the existential problem being, well, why would God allow this kind of libertarian free will when he knew that it was just going to run amok? Be my short answer. No, that's exactly what I was looking for. And now you've done my job on Wednesday. And okay, good. So what books have been formative for All you? Right, books for me. So did not grow up in a particularly observant uh, Christian home. Uh, when I was saved at age 15, did not, uh, was not really discipled as a reader. So pretty much everything is from college on. And I think it's easy for me to take for granted the fact that I was involved within a, within a crew movement where we were reading through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology as a small group. So that's one that was influential for me. Um, and also where I was in a church where I would ask the pastor, hey, give me your recommendations on what, um, on what biographies I should read. Uh, so pretty much in those sh short years of college and then early adulthood while I was um, starting out in my career at Christianity Today, this would be the list of books that, that were influential. Uh, Roland Baton's biography on Martin Luther. Uh, then later, I remember years, years later, uh, my wife and I were married. And at one point I said, 
Do you ever wonder about this big biography of Jonathan Edwards that I'm reading, George Marsden? And she's like, yeah, but I just didn't think to ask. I mean, we just, we did not grow up in an environment where you would have talked a lot about Jonathan Edwards. So that biography was hugely influential. Some of the college books that circulated a lot, and I don't know, there seemed to be different books that become must-reads within college ministries, I guess, and college churches. Uh, for us, it was Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship. And then as a, as a major in European history, I ended up writing a lot about Bonhoeffer and other kind of opponents of the Nazis from, from the Protestant perspective. And then also that's where I picked up uh, uh, Dostoevsky and um, uh, his uh, brothers Karamazov in particular. So in the last one I'd mentioned, which was hugely influential in terms of my my career, and then ultimately even I keep going back to it today in books that I'm writing would be uh, uh, Carl Henry's Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. So yeah, that was, it, it's just kind of amazing to me of how the Lord, well, I guess let me put it this way. I can go back and cite a lot of other books I read during this time that were not formative to me, mm. which is interesting because in retrospect, I was not nearly as discerning as I thought I was at the time. There were still a lot of things theologically that were up in the air for me. So these were the formative ones, meaning they're the ones that I still stand by today. Yeah, that's good. A good list. And I, I only have a few of those. Most of those I, I know of, but not on my list. What about you, Justin? What were some of the formative Christian books in your early maturation years? Yeah, my background's a, a bit similar to Collins and they grew up in a mainline church. I think one difference was that my mom is a very uh, godly, active, evangelical, Bible study leader sort of person. So I kind of had both of those worlds. Not a huge Christian reader, I don't think, growing up uh, that I can recall. I'm sure there were books that are formative that slipped my mind now. But in high school, it was books more like uh, Cross of the Switchblade by David Wilkerson. Um, and his ministry is actually how my mom came to the Lord in hmm. the 1970s. Um, Christian sports biographies like Dave Trevecki, who was a Dave major Trevecki. league. Yeah. Hershiser. <laughs> yeah. I did not read that one. But uh, Tom Osborne's More Than Winning. Uh, when you have one of the winningest programs, you can write a book called More Than Winning. I don't know that uh, a Nebraska coach can write More Than Winning right now. <laughs> but those sort of books that, you know, they they weren't profound. They were. Well, now they perhaps, can say, yeah, we're, we're about. Much more than winning, for sure. <laughs> winning is not the only thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, those books, I think that the Lord used them to, uh, number one, say that uh, God exists, God matters, the gospel is real, the gospel can change your life, that you should dedicate yourself to the Lord. That uh, I think there was some undertone of you can be a successful, accomplished person and not be weird and still believe in the Lord and tell other people about him. So, I mean, the, that sort of FCA world that I existed in in uh, high school was formative for me and the, the literature that came along with it. I think in college, the first serious book that I read is as a freshman, this is at a public university uh, from an atheistic professor and uh, Western Civ was reading Augustine's Confessions which is part of the curriculum because of how formative it is and just fell in love with that book and have never lost my love for uh, that book. Uh, part of my story is being at a secular university and growing in my faith, having to 
basically study apologetics on my own in order to know if I really did believe this and what are arguments that I can use. So uh, William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith was really significant for me uh, back then in the the late 90s, mid to late 90s. Uh, of course, John Piper's books, the, the trilogy, kind of his three biggest early on books, Future Grace, Pleasures of God, Desiring God, that opened up to me a whole new way of, of thinking, talking, um, and also opened up other literature. Uh, Grudem's Systematic Theology, I think, was similar. That they're just mm. categories I never thought through Christology before. Um, never thought through what is my millennial position. So uh, Grudem's Systematic Theology was the first opportunity to really think through systematically the various doctrines of the faith, connect them in a, in a doxological way. And then one of the things I appreciate about Wayne's work is that he also had recommended reading to go on and read Calvin's Institute mm-hmm. or read Hodge or to read Bob Inc. Um, so a couple other names to be Jerry Bridges at a, at a popular level, just on what it means to be godly, what it means to be holy. Uh, and John Frame's Doctrine of the Knowledge of God uh, introduced me to thinking about epistemology and knowledge uh, in a really interesting biblical way, I thought. So those kind of divide the, the high school years and the college years. And then we could do another session on beyond college and seminary. Yeah, we should do that next. Well, we and we also need to do one on formative Christian music, because apparently <laughs> as I'm thinking about this, that's how I spent my high school. I wasn't being formed by books. I was being formed by music in a lot of good ways. Go ahead, Kevin. We should do that. Ne- what what Christian concerts have you been to? Oh, yeah. Have you ever been many... to a, a Rebecca St. James concert? <laughs> Jeff Moore in the Distance? Oh, love Jeff Moore in the Distance. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I've yep. been to Jars of Clay a couple times. Okay, we'll save that for another time. Okay. So formative Christian books. Uh, so I, I grew up in a, a RCA church, but evangelical church and good family, though I you know wasn't reading Christian books. I mean, I think I started having a quiet time each day when I was maybe a junior or senior in high school. And I picked up a devotional by Campus Life or something. It just had some some readings and some quotes. And I remember reading that. I couldn't tell you anything about it, but it was helpful at the time. And uh, when I got into college, of course, I went to a Christian college and majored in religion. So I was reading lots of things there. But outside of what I was assigned I, I've told this story many times. I'll be very brief. I was a freshman. I was talking with some guys on my floor one night. My roommate, who was a nominal Christian, wasn't really serious about Jesus that I could tell. A guy who was a hedonist, not the good John Piper kind, but uh, I want to have sex. That's what my life is about. Um, I did come into my room one time when he was in my roommate's bed with his girlfriend, so he was true to his principles. And then a guy who was into crystals and Ricky Lake. You'll have to look up Ricky Lake if you're not of our Gen X age. So we were all up one night and they were kind of hounding me with typical questions. What about the tribesmen who never heard of Jesus? And how can you believe in hell? And all sorts of questions. And I got done with that night and I thought, I've been a Christian my whole life. And it's nobody's fault, but I feel like, boy, I'm I'm not well equipped to, to answer these questions, to know what I believe and why I believe it. So I picked up those books. IVP had those two classic books by Paul Little, Know What You Believe, Know Why You Believe. I read them, underlined them, outlined them. It was just really, and I haven't looked at them for 
20 years. So I don't know what's all in them 25 years now, but was helped by them. And then this is not everyone's story, but I made a little bit of a jump from those to Calvin's institutes. <laughs> my, my, my dad had Calvin's institutes on the shelf and I got his copy and brought it to school. And I thought, well, I, there's 1500 pages, three, uh, five pages a day. And you can miss one day a week. I can get through this in a year. And that was absolutely revolutionary for me. Not only the content, but just the idea. I can go back and read these old books for myself. And I can, you know, not understand half of it, but I can understand half of it. And so that's no exaggeration to say that changed my life. I read that my freshman year. And then I got the battles translation. So I read the beverage translation. Then I read the battles translation my the next year, because I thought I need to go through this again. So certainly Calvin's Institutes were very formative for me. In college, I also, you know, a friend introduced me to Banner of Truth. And so started reading some. So some of the ones that that come to mind, certainly a lot of Lloyd-Jones, Preaching and Preachers. Well, that's a Zondervan book. But his uh, his lectures on the Puritans, his lectures on revival, some of his church history stuff. I just ate it up. Now, I would look back now and say, yeah, Lloyd-Jones was lacking in some ways as a historian, but he also did something really powerful with history, and that is to inspire Christians with Christian history. So I love that book on the Puritans and uh, loved reading Ian Murray's two-volume biography of Lloyd-Jones. That was really... And I, and I started reading some Edwards, uh, oh, then the other person to mention is David Wells. Some point in my college years, I first read God in the Wasteland, which I think was 1994 in college. Yes. You read those in college. I read those in college. Huh. And okay. then I read No Place for Truth, which was the first one. And then I read Losing Our Virtue. So I think those were the three that came out that were out before I went to seminary. And that's one of the reasons I went to Gordon Conwell's because David Wells was there, but those, I mean, that was just eye-opening. Oh, I cannot, that this is, this is true. This is, this is right. I, this is, this analysis makes sense to me. I was later on the Piper game than you guys were because I saw Piper, not him personally. I saw his books in a Christian bookstore and my basic philosophy was if I could buy it in a local Christian bookstore, it was probably a bad book. Again, Which, at what age? What age was this? Your philosophy? Uh, that I had that philosophy. Yeah, yeah. When I was like a freshman in college. Yeah, okay. Was, that that was my base, and it it wasn't a terrible philosophy to have. But when someone first said, "Hey, have you heard this John Piper book?" and I saw Meditations of a Christian Hedonist, I told this to John before. I mean, my first thought was, "That's garbage." <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> it's in a Christian bookstore. It's about being a hedonist. And so it wasn't until seminary that I read that and I read Future Grace, which, and uh, yeah, so, and got on lots of Piper tapes and books. It was massively helped. I noticed that none of us mentioned C.S. Lewis. Now we've read um, a lot of C.S. Lewis. You I could have, okay. I could have mentioned mere Christianity in college. Okay. Yeah, yeah me too. Oh, mm -hmm. well, sorry. I was going to make a point there that, you know, the, the Piper Keller generation massively, I mean, they're, Lewis is one of their top two or three guys. Yeah. And I read all those books, but I, I wouldn't put him as 
formative, but helpful. Your Christianity was one of those. It was like Piper, Lewis, Bonhoeffer, at least in the college ministry I was in. And so they were kind of the rite of passage in all of those. Um, Kevin, have you spoken with Sarah Zalstra yet about David Wells for the profile she's writing no, about him? No, heard her. Okay. Well, she'll be in touch. She's working on that now. Oh, good. I, I can give some some good stories. And and my wife had his wife, I think, as a professor at Gordon College. Oh, I had no idea. Okay. She taught at Gordon College. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, last question, fun question for you. So let me set this up. We are recently on a pastor's retreat, and whenever I lead our pastor's retreats, and my philosophy of pastor's retreat is have fun, try not to do work, and spend some time sharing and praying with each other. So I'm always thinking each year, because there's a lot of us who go on this. It's not just pastors. It's kind of other senior staff. So there's like 14, 15 guys. And I'm thinking of ways for us to share that isn't just, hey, we'll all listen to you for 45 minutes as you share. That gets tedious. So I've done different things. So this year, I had everyone write five questions, put them in a hat. They could be serious questions. They could be fun questions. And we pull them out. And we go around the circle and we do it for an hour and then we do it later in the day. And you take a minute or two to answer these these questions. Well, it I don't know what it says about our, our, our jobs, but the most common question that was in there was, if you weren't a pastor, what would you be doing? So I we, <laughs> I don't know if we were all thinking about, oh, I wonder what else I could do. In the middle of the pandemic. It, yeah, no yes, kidding. In, in the middle of our pastor's retreat. Oh, someone else wants to know what else you would do. But what what would you men be doing? And try to think outside the box, not just, well, I'd be an editor or something else. You know, put it in a different career. Could we guess each other? Oh yeah. Now, that would be interesting. Okay, okay. Let's do that. We're gonna start. Justin, what do you guess for Colin? Now let let me give you this proviso. It has to be within the realm of possibility. So I'm not uh, gonna say uh... Oh, you don't well, want to do that? And just well, say, well, Colin's going to be in, you know, the Northwestern football coach. Well, could it be in the realm of possibility if you had taken a different course when yes. you were 18? Um, sure. But I mean, not I'm just now. saying not, you're not the center for the Lakers. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that, that okay. Yes. Like that, I see model. what you're saying. A yes. male model. <laughs> I mean, probably more likely. They need models okay. for all sorts of Understandable. Things. Okay. Okay. Understandable. Okay. Justin, guess for Colin. Uh, the color commentator for the Northwestern Wildcats. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty fair. My, mine would have been, would have started out as a baseball general manager or a sports writer or, um, more recently, understanding myself the last 10 years definitely could have been uh, a football coach. I was going to guess football coach. Yeah, I definitely started with high school. Line coach was going to be my second one. For yeah, me. I can see that. So, except I would never have had the size to be able to play any of those positions. And but what I would, would you like about that? How would that fit? Co- football Manson? coaching? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think I realized until, and this is, I guess, the fun thing, but also the, it's not really a what if. I, there's a combination of football coaching with strategy and people and motivation and leadership and quick thinking. And that just, I love that mixture of things. And, and it's also an all consuming kind of thing. And I tend to gravitate toward work. That's all consuming. And my parents uh, are that way 
as well. So I just wouldn't have done it because I could never have played at the college level and I didn't really have a sophisticated high school program. But I definitely thought in high school, yeah, I could be like a baseball general manager or something. Again, would, I wasn't would you be would it, you but... be a quote players coach if you're the football coach or would you be like old school throw you around that's a that's funny i think if you um so i don't know what you guys are like when you think of your coaches or you think of your teachers and how that affects you today but when i look back i always gravitated gravitated toward the same profile which is a person who was known for being really demanding really hard but if you submitted to that discipline, it would pay off and then you would develop a close personal relationship and you would see them behind the curtain that they really only ever wanted what was best for you. That's basically my management style today for better or worse. And so, yeah, I would have been, you would think not a player's coach, but actually it would have been a, a player's coach. I think back in my high school coaches, I mainly think about profanity. <laughs> so I, I didn't have cigarettes. to deal. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't have to deal with that. So, okay. All right. What what would Justin be? Used car salesman. Um, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Let me. Um, well, I don't know if this is far enough out of your field, but a history teacher. A I was going to guess that. I was going to guess that. Okay. What 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 do you got for us, Justin? What do I think I would have been? Yeah, what you yeah. Would yeah. Have been. Or just, yeah, uh, what yeah. would be your other career? I was at Desiring God and trying to think about, I knew I wasn't going to stay at Desiring God forever. I really was thinking about career paths and being a professor, uh, maybe seminary professor, history professor would be in the realm of possibility, or an associate pastor who was at a large church in charge of like a seminary level uh, apprenticeship. You know, not the main preaching pastor, but a Jeff somebody Burswell. in the past. Yeah. Yep. Or Tom Steller of Bethlehem. That that sort of field seemed like that could fit me, but I ended up going into publishing. Well, you're doing the, the yeah, now you're doing it through books for millions of people. Yeah. I think if I, you know, take it out of the ministry realm altogether, I'd probably be a high school educator. Just got so many educators in my family. Both of my parents were teachers and brother and sister were teachers. So that basketball like coach as well uh, uh i don't know if i could actually pull that off i could i could i could see you being the history teacher slash basketball coach you just uh okay guys we're gonna watch glory today put in the vcr <laughs> we did that a lot <laughs> in high school and i'm just gonna sit in the back of the class and draw up plays for this afternoon so <laughs> i think of one of my his, my social studies teachers who was the swim coach and uh, somehow he had a class, an elective class in high school on the 50s and the 60s, which was, and it, it was basically, yeah, it was like 50s, 60s, 70s. And it was uh, about three weeks of the class, as I recall, was him bringing in his Beatles albums. <laughs> like looking at the we're... Beatles, talking about the Beatles. That's why you today hate John Lennon and Imagine. That's where that came from. <laughs> Uh, nice. Today we're going to start a unit on uh, season two of Happy Days. Uh, yeah, I don't know trend. how this happened. I don't know if I've ever told anyone this well s story, but I remember going to like the auditorium to see all the Beatles paraphernalia, and I'm not sure how this got through whatever at my public school, 
but it was whatever that picture was. I don't even know if that's an album or a picture what of John and Yoko stark naked. That mm. was very scarring mm. for me. I thought, how did this end up in my my high school curriculum? So yeah, I have you're uncovering <laughs> a lot of issues, Colin. <laughs> okay, do I get to guess for you now? Colin? Yeah, okay. Uh, we've already mentioned him a number of times on the podcast, but I could have seen a Ben Sass career for you, a political career, um, but would have an overlap with the education. So you definitely could have been a lawyer, like a Witherspoon type. So lawyer, politician, academic, that realm. So uh, or conservative columnist for the Los Angeles Times or something like that. Yeah, I can ah, see that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just so you know, our, our listeners, we did not share any of these ahead of time. No, we just we must not. know each other well. So, <laughs> yes, I was going to say a lawyer. Okay. Very unspiritual. Um, I did study political science in college. I worked on some campaigns. What did me in was to kind of go that route. You had to basically go do a, a study semester in D.C., and you worked with some, you were a staffer. And that whole thing just seemed really nothing about that seemed attractive to me. Um, you know, being maybe the candidate might have seemed attractive. But really, when I thought about it, it was it was the speaking, the teaching. That that was the part that, that I liked. Being able to talk about these ideas and the things I believed. And, you know, then the Lord just cemented, hey, there is a profession where you can do that. <laughs> and you can do it about things much more important. But yes, I've thought before. What's that? Make a lot less money. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I have thought before that I don't know what type of lawyer, but I think I would have enjoyed law school and uh, thinking through arguments, reading through minutiae, trying to find what's the the needle in a haystack here. I would enjoy that. And presenting arguments in front of a judge or a jury and that pressure and being on the spot. I think all of that I could, I could see enjoying. I, I would, I would help support you and your various ministries as high school teachers and football coaches. <laughs> so there we go. You learn a little something new about us. Any, any uh, last word for us? Nothing. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty impressed that we could all guess. I, I did not think other. we were going to do that. That <laughs> was that was inspired. Very inspired. Okay. Well, next week, um, we will be uh, recording at a different time. Of course, you listening won't know that, but I'll be interviewing, Lord willing, uh, James Eglinton on his new biography of Bavink. Because of the time change across the ocean, uh, Justin Collin may not be there, but uh, I am about halfway through the book and finish it this week and looking forward to that. And so we will all be together, hopefully very soon we have some other authors and great books to talk about and authors to interview later throughout this season but colin justin wonderful to be with you all thank you to our listeners glorify god and join forever go read a good book <laughs>